Friends, if you've been with us for any time, you know that we are in a series called Answers Questioning the Bible. And this is a summer series, so we only have a few weeks left before we jump into 1 John. And so in the fall, we'll be jumping into the epistle of 1 John. Um, And I'm excited about that. But until then, we have a few more messages left. And tonight is going to be about Satan and demons. Excellent. Um, People are either rightly or wrongly obsessed with Satan and demons. Uh, I think we're moving in a culture that is rebelling against the hard atheism and materialistic nature of of the last several decades. I think we're moving into, uh, in in the next couple decades, a very spiritual uh, people, uh, which, which means probably people seeking even dark spirits and finding some kind of reality there because there is a reality there. And the Bible says that there is not only real personal evil in uh, the form of demonic angels, but there is the ultimate evil in the person of Satan or the devil. And that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. So here's the the questions that were asked that uh, prompted this sermon. Number one, pre-fall Satan. What is his context and what is his will? What a great question. Here's two more questions. Does Satan know our thoughts? Can Satan read our minds? And then, in relation to that question, how does Satan know how to strategically tempt Christians? How does Satan know how to strategically tempt Christians? And so what we're gonna do, as we've done with all these messages, is look into Scripture. Uh, we've talked about Satan and demons many times over the past nine years of Eternal City Church. Uh, and so this will be hopefully something different and new. Uh, it's not building on any sermons in the past. And so I hope that those of you who've been with us for the nine years uh, that we've been in existence will be blessed and helped. And so let's look at 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11 first. Uh, Peter opens up chapter 5 with uh, exhorting pastors. He says, as a fellow elder, he admonishes, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight. And then he goes on to uh, encourage pastors uh, how to shepherd the flock as a fellow pastor himself. And then there's those famous two verses, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he will lift you up. Cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. And then, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the Bible is not loaded with information on Satan and demons. However, there is more information in the New Testament and Old Testament that you might think that gives us insight into the demonic world or into uh, satanic warfare. And I want you to know, if you didn't already, if you're a Christian, you have experienced spiritual warfare, and sadly, you will continue to experience spiritual warfare your entire Christian life. And the more you attempt to do for God and for His kingdom, the hotter the battle will be because you pose a threat. And so, this is relevant to every single person in here. You have encounters with supernatural, invisible beings who are literally hell-bent on destroying you and your faith and your family and want to see you leave the God of the Bible and trust in yourself or trust in any other deity or philosophy or ideology other than the triune God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And so here, Peter is admonishing the church to be sober-minded, 
Yeah. So, isn't that interesting? Talking about Satan and the power blips and the live stream stops. Can you hear me? All right. Well, we'll just keep going and you guys figure that out as we go. (laughs) I don't believe in coincidence, uh, but that is ironic, right? I mean, come on. Pure irony? I don't know. I don't know. So, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8. All right. Now, here's what I want you to, to realize here with no screen. All right. I'm just going to have to read it. To be sober-minded is an action step that you are supposed to take in spiritual warfare. Okay, so it, now might be the time to like get out your Bible, get out your phone, and look at it with me since it's not going to be on the screen. Okay, I, want, I would like you to follow with me. I don't want you to assume what I'm saying. Okay, so if, if you want to get out your Bible, oh, look, it's coming back. <laughs> Praise God. All right. The devil is a liar. <laughs> I, I was at a hip-hop show one time. Okay, and, uh, and the, the rapper was on stage, and, and the sound system went, and it just shut down. And someone from the audience was like, the devil is a liar. And then everyone clapped. And then the rapper, I think, wisely said, the devil is a liar, but he might not have blew up the sound system. <laughs> Again, who knows, right? It's the invisible world. We'll find out someday. Praise God, we're back online. All right. So to be sober-minded, friends, is, remember the context here, satanic warfare and the devil prowling around seeking to devour you. So to be sober-minded is an action step that is your fighting against Satan. What does sober-minded mean? Yes, it means not drunk. It means not high. It means not all gooned out on pills. Yes, it means that, but it means more than that, okay? It means not on the extremes, Some of us are prone to extremes, aren't we? Uh, Extreme right, extreme left, extreme conspiracy theories, just extremes, okay? It means being sober-minded and reasonable, okay? So it's more than just you shouldn't be drunk and you shouldn't be high. You should also be reasonable and sober-minded. That would also mean taking care of your sleep, right? Like, I know when I don't get enough sleep, I'm anything but sober, Hey, I'm like drooling, I'm incoherent, I can't remember my last name. It's not good. Hey, and you, you who have infants in the room, you understand this, right? You're like, there's anything but sober for the first year of having an infant. You're just zonked out bananas, okay? And, and I have love and respect for all you parents in here because I've lived that life too. I know experientially it's hard, okay? And it, it literally turns you into a different person for about a year or two, and it's not good. <laughs> you become a zombie. And so to be sober-minded is spiritual warfare. Secondly, be watchful. Be watchful, meaning be on guard, Don't let your guard down. Now, what I'm not advocating, and I don't think what Peter's advocating here, is like paranoid schizophrenia, meaning there's the devil under every rock, there's the devil under, you know, every flat tire, etc. Now, can Satan do things like just happen where the power just shut down in a strange way? Sure, he could do that. But can we guarantee that that was the work of the enemy? I don't know. We can't guarantee it. Is every bad thing that comes into your life the devil? I would say probably not. If you sin, you probably should not say, well, the devil made me do it. Because that's sliding the excuse from you onto the devil, and that allows you to not have to repent, and it's really not your fault. You're a victim. Now, in some sense, we are victims of satanic warfare, and so I'm going to try to give you a very nuanced version of spiritual warfare here, okay? So, does Satan tempt Christians and seek to devour them? Absolutely. That's what it says here. Look at uh, the second part of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil. Now, this word adversary means this, okay? When we see descriptions of the devil in the Bible, we know what he's like, and knowing what he's like helps us to understand how he will tempt us, which answers the question that was asked. Do you remember the question? It was, how does Satan know how to strategically tempt Christians? And I think the key word there is strategically. We'll get into that in a moment. So, adversary means this. Ready? It means accuser, Plaintiff, enemy, opponent. 
literally one who brings a charge in a lawsuit. Accuser, that's, that's a plaintiff. It, it's um, a person who brings a suit in court. That's Satan. And, and who is Satan bringing Christians before as the judge? God. You say, that's weird. I never thought of it like that. It's, it's in Job, right? The, the sons of God, which are angels, are appearing before God and giving account, and Satan was also there. And God, the ruler and sustainer of, of Satan and demons himself, says, where, where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? Righteous, no one like him. Okay? And, and God forbid your name comes up in this conversation. Right? Have you considered my servant Eddie? Righteous among men. And then Satan says something like this to, oh, Eddie loves you because you've blessed him and given him a good life. Let me have Adam, and he'll curse you to your face and turn on you, right? And that was what, that was what uh, Satan said about Job. Look, you, you've blessed him beyond measure. If you let me have at him, he will curse you and turn from you. And you know the story. He says, okay, do not harm the man. And so Satan has at his kids, has at his possessions, has at his servants, and Job is left with nothing but his health and his wife. And then a second round, have you considered my servant Job? None like him. Ah, skin for skin. Take his health, and then he will curse you. That's fine. Do not kill him. And you remember, Job ends up with boils all over his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, so there's literally no way he could be comfortable in any position. It's horrible. And then the book of Job unfolds for 40-some chapters, okay? And this is Satan, the adversary. Who was he uh, accusing? Who was he the opponent of? Who was he the enemy of? Job. And friends, in, in like manner, we face this adversary. And that's what it means here. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, he's your adversary. He's my adversary. And he's called the devil. Now, this word, devil, is diablos, okay? You, you know that word. It's pretty common. But here's what it means. It means to engage in slander, slanderous, making false accusations and false statements, damaging a person's reputation. And so, listen, if you've ever been involved in slandering someone else, you were being devilish. It's exactly what you were doing by definition. And so slander is a satanic sin, as all of them are, right? Every time you lie, you are speaking Satan's language. Because in John 8, Jesus said, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. You speak English, he speaks lie. And every time you lie, you're speaking his language. This is a great warning for us, that passage in John 8, for us to be truth tellers. Because whose language is truth? God. God. And so when we tell truth and speak truth, whose language are we speaking? We're speaking God's language as opposed to Satan's. And so friends, dabbling in deception, dabbling in accusation, dabbling in slander, dabbling in lie, you are dabbling in the demonic. This is what we would call the normal demonic, not the super normal demonic, right, where things show up in the mirror and you hear noises or the power shuts down out of nowhere. Okay, that's the super normal demonic. But what you will most often face is not that. It's very subtle and it's very normal, such that you don't even realize it's happening. And that is its great power. It's not even at the top of the mind that I'm in a battle for my soul. So, be alert, be sober-minded. That's the NIV here. Stay alert, watch out. That's the NLT. Be sober-minded, be watchful. It's the ESV. Be sober-minded and alert. Be vigilant. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Be serious and be alert. Okay, do you, do you get the, the uh, application here? We as Christians need to be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because we have an accuser and a slanderer who is out to get us. 
And then we learn more. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Um, I've been to Uganda several times. My first time that I was there in 2018. And uh, every time I've been there, I've had the privilege on, of going on safari. And you will most often not see large cats, but if you get there early enough, you can see the cats in the trees. And so once I was able to see uh, some leopards in the tree. But at one point, my first time there, I was in this van that a friend was driving, and we had rented a guide, okay? A guide who knows the land, who will tell us what to do. And we came upon this pack of giraffes, you know, and there was probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 giraffes just, just rolling out in the road, and we're 10 feet away, and we stop, and people are out the roof, and I couldn't really get a good sight, a good uh, seeing of them, so I open the door, and I hop out, and I start walking up this little hill by all this high grass. Why not, right? They're just giraffe. What are they going to do to you? Right? It's a petting zoo. And so, you know, the guide is looking out the window and notices a foreign animal walking up the hill, me, and says, what are you doing? Get back in here. You don't know what's in that high grass. Oh, crap. <laughs> so I, and, and here's what happens. Large cats, like lions, hide in the grass, and you don't even know they're there until it's too late. You're gone. And this is the image, friend. Satan is prowling. He's, he's very quietly, secretly, bloodthirstily looking to get you. And you know how he will get you? He will find you in a moment of weakness, and he will tempt you, and you will give in. And sometimes the consequences are devastating, sometimes life-altering. Right? Sometimes uh, we sin and there's no appearing consequences, but there's always consequences. But sometimes they are grave and long-lasting and detrimental. Here's Hebrews. We'll come back to 1 Peter in a moment. Hebrews 12 uh, follows uh, Hebrews 11, which is the uh, so-called faith hall of fame. It, it recounts many of the Old Testament uh, men and women of faith who loved God and were saved ultimately by Jesus Christ. And uh, 12 starts, therefore, in light of all these men and women who lived by faith, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those just mentioned in the chapter before, they are witnesses of a life of faith. Let us also, friends, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Right? So this is, this is a help. Okay? How is Satan going to get you? He is, how will he specifically tempt you was the question, remember? He knows the world of sin and knows how to navigate that world with great skill and accuracy. And if you are one who loves a certain sin or are drawn to a certain kind of sin or a certain realm of darkness, he will exploit that every time. And so for you, what is the sin that clings so close to you? I always think of um, piers in the ocean and, and barnacles. You know, you can't even get these things off if you chip at them with shells. You know, that's the, that's the idea of a sin that clings so close to you. It's just on you, and it's hard to get it off. And it keeps reoccurring and tempting you over and over, and you give in over and over, and you repent and repent and repent, and it's still clinging. And the admonition here is, let us lay aside every weight, whatever hinders us, and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance Okay? The Christian life is one, friends, not of flash and sparkle and glitter and, you know, New Year's Eve, boom, big pinata, and then, you know, four hours later, we're sweeping it all up. No, the Christian life is one of decades upon decades upon decades upon an entire life. And so, if you fail today, you know what you need to do? You need to wipe the blood off, stand back up, dust yourself off, repent, confess if you need to, and then you keep moving forward. And friends, what Satan wants you to do is stay down. Get up again, and we'll punch you in the mouth again, he says. And you know what you do? You get back up. And if you get punched in the mouth again, you know what you do? You get back up. 
and you plead with God for the strength of his Holy Spirit to enable you to fight another battle after another battle after another battle because, friends, the Christian life is one of war. That's the language used in the Bible. Okay? Romans 8.13, by the Spirit, put to death the sin that is in you. Okay? And that is a whole life experience. You remember the last time I preached, I preached on progressive sanctification, which takes an entire life to grow. Okay? And so the sin that so easily entangles you now is probably not the sin that so easily entangled you a year ago, right? Or two years ago, or three years ago, and that's good. That's called progress. Okay? What is the current sin that so easily entangles you or trips you up or gets you every time. Friends, Satan exploits that, his demons exploit that, and they know just how to tempt you every time. And listen, the more you give in, the easier it is to give in next time. And the more you give in the next time, the easier it is to give in the next time and so on and so forth. Friends, it is so dangerous to create a habit in your life of giving in to a particular sin because pretty soon it doesn't even feel like you're doing anything wrong. And it's killing you. And it's killing the good things in your life and the blessing of God. Okay? And so uh, hold that in your pocket and we'll get back to that in a moment. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here, Jesus is put forth as the example. He's the one who faced terrible suffering. He endured the cross, which literally killed him by execution. And it was the most shameful way to die, naked and fully exposed to the elements and to anyone who would pass by, hurl insults, spit on, uh, you know, beat up by mob before crucifixion, despising that shame, but yet now, because he won, he is seated at the right hand of God in victory. And friends, this is the promise for us. As we overcome, as we overcome, as we crawl forward, friends, we will know resurrection and victory for eternity. One day, Satan and demons will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is eternal, and Christians will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth, minus Satan and demons, minus sickness, minus frail bodies, minus temptability. There will be no sin in you that will be attracted to temptation. This is how it is for Jesus. Though he was tempted on earth, and he was, he was tempted beyond what we have ever experienced. Though he was tempted... There was no sin in him, and there was nothing in him that was attracted to evil. That's the opposite for us. When Satan puts forward our favorite temptation, we want it. There's a bodily pull. There's an emotional desire. There is a bodily draw towards that thing. And sometimes, friend, like Joseph in Genesis, you have to turn and literally run. Run. Throw the phone. Get out of that conversation. Run out of that room, etc. Physically, you need to take action sometimes. And let me go back here. And we'll finish Peter and we'll move on to another text. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, now look at this, friends. This is, this is a promise to Christians. Okay? This is one you can claim for yourself. He will restore what has been broken and lost. Restore, restoration. He will confirm and strengthen and establish you. Now, in the case of Job, if you know the story, all things were restored to him ten times. Now, if we don't get restoration here on earth, we are promised restoration and better in heaven. And so whether we get it here or whether we get it in heaven, we are promised restoration, confirmation of our faith and trust in God, strengthening and establishment. Friends, we will be established forever by God himself through Jesus by the Spirit. Verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. And so that last verse 11 there shows that God is going to rule and reign in total, 
not that he's not ruling and reigning now, he is, but he's given Satan and demons a bit of freedom for a season. And he's given human beings a bit of freedom for a season to rebel against him and to make choices to sin against him or not. Okay? People wonder, why in the world would God put the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden anyway? Right? Like God provided a perfect environment and he provided the opportunity to break the universe and populate hell. Why in the world would he do that? And here's the answer, at least part of the answer, okay? If you don't have any do nots or do, there's no opportunity for obedience. And so therefore, if, if Adam and Eve had this perfect environment, which they did, they had a grace world with one law tree. Without that one law tree, do not, there's no way they could have been obedient. If God never said, do this or don't do this, how, how can we obey or not? And so it was an opportunity to show love and trust and faith by obedience. And our first parents failed. And God did allow that. He allowed freedom of will to Adam and Eve to make a right choice or a wrong choice. And they made the wrong choice and it affected all of us. We as their sons and daughters inherited their sin and we are now not only going to die, but we are attracted to what will kill us. It's sad, but that's the reality we live in. Here in 1 Corinthians, uh, I want to pull this out because Satan attacks in isolation, and he attacks when you're not connected to a local church. Okay? So, the Bible actually puts forth the local church in the New Testament as a place of God's blessing and protection. In fact, pastors uh, are, are equivalent to shepherds, and shepherds are supposed to not only teach right doctrine or, or right teaching, truth, but they're also supposed to refute wrong teaching. That's what Titus says. Be able to refute those who, who teach wrongly. Okay? But in addition, there is a sense in which the local church, if you're missing or if you go off the deep end, the church, not just the pastors, but the other members go after you. And they say, what are you doing? You're swimming in what will kill you. And sadly, all of us know people, or we've been that person ourselves who's like, I don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. I want my sin. I love my sin. Screw you. Right? We've been those people at times. That's a hard-hearted, rebellious attitude. And sometimes God will say, have it your way, to your own destruction. Okay? Now, I love you enough to say these things. Okay? Can you imagine Joel Osteen up here saying these things to you? No, you can't imagine that. Okay? And I'm not hating, I'm just saying, I want you to succeed and to live a healthy spiritual life. Okay? And how are you going to do that? You're going to stay in contact with other Christians. You're going to be accountable. And as James says, you're going to confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. You're going to stay in some kind of church membership and be committed even when you don't want to. Why? Because God designed the local church for your protection and spiritual well-being. Where's that in the Bible? Well, here's one place. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a terrible, terrible situation where a man is sleeping with probably his stepmother or his mother-in-law, okay? And, and Paul is like, yo, you guys are arrogant about this. You're tolerating this, and people in the world don't even act like this. Now, for those of you who think this is way outside the realm of possibility, imagine a man is in his 50s, and he marries a, a younger woman 20 years younger than him the age of his son. Is that so weird? It's possible. It's not right, and it's demonic, and it's satanic, and here's Paul's response. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Wait a minute, this guy's in the church. Yes, hand him over. For what? For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
And so here's what, here's what Paul wants the Corinthians to do to this guy. This is so bad, not only for him, but for the church as a whole. This is that famous, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a baking illustration. You put a tiny little bit of leaven in an unleavened piece of dough, and it just permeates throughout the whole dough. He's saying, this sin will permeate through the whole church, and you need to get this guy out. And what are you going to do? You're going to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, here's one commentator. I found this helpful. And remember, we're talking about isolation and being absent from the local church is a dangerous place to be spiritually, okay? One uh, biblical counselor and commentator says this, put him out of the church. That does not mean to physically exclude him from listening to the preaching of the word. You don't do that to others considered unbelievers. But it means he is no longer under the care and discipline of the church. Instead, he is handed over or delivered to Satan. That is to say, he is now considered as a heathen or a tax collector. That's in Matthew 18 as the last step of church discipline. A heathen or a tax collector, an unbeliever, in other words. He is outside the protection and benefits of Christ's church. Satan may now deal with him in ways in which he could not when he was still protected by membership in Christ's organized church. This rough handling by Satan is calculated to destroy the flesh. Destroy the flesh. Now, he gets into the two possibilities. He says two possible meanings of those words. Either Satan is permitted to afflict him physically as he is forbidden to afflict a Christian, and he cites 1 John 5.18. We'll get into that uh, by the end of the year. Or Satan's dealings with him will bring him to his senses, thus destroying the flesh. That means the sinful part of him, his sinful habitual patterns. And then this biblical counselor goes on to say, the former explanation, the actual marring of him physically, is to be chosen and more likely the true one. Either way, handing an unrepentant sinner over to Satan is designed not merely to rid the church of his influence, but also the final attempt to reclaim him. Now, now, now to us in 2023 in America, this seems like spiritual abuse, right? If we did this as pastors, we would probably get charged with spiritual abuse. Hey, we're handing you over to Satan. Right? And all of a sudden, Eternal City Church shows up in Christianity today in a bad way. Right? That's, that's probably what would happen. But this is the Bible. This is the Apostle Paul. And what he's saying here is, it is far more dangerous for you to live in sin than for you to be handed over to Satan. Right? Because what's the, what's the hope? Is that his spirit might be saved. And what will Satan do? Drag you to hell with him. Do you see what he's saying here? It would be better for you to get handed over to Satan and Satan mar you physically than for you to get dragged into hell forever. That's what he's saying. Now, good news. When we have the next letter to the Corinthians, the man repented. Okay, the man repented. And before we move to that text, um, I want you to know that the word Satan means adversary and enemy. Adversary and enemy an enemy. Hand him over to the adversary. Hand him over to the enemy. Now, this 2 Corinthians 2, this whole paragraph here, 8 to 11, is about the situation we just talked about. Hey, now watch this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Welcome the guy back. Bring him back into fellowship. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now watch this, verse 11. So that we might not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Hmm. 
So at first, he wants the guy handed over to Satan so that he might repent, and apparently he repents, and now the church is to welcome him back in so that something doesn't happen. Do you see it in there? Verse 7, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And what does that look like? Being outwitted by Satan. Mm. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Designs means intentions, purposes, or his thoughts. Now, how does that work? All right, let's unpack this for one minute, okay? Here's what this means. Satan uses excessive sorrow to make you doubt God and to be overwhelmed with grief and perhaps even to leave God. And if the church doesn't welcome him back in, this man is still out of the protection of the local church, okay? And the idea here is welcome him back in because Paul has forgiven him implied Jesus has forgiven him. Listen, friends, if Jesus forgives you, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You have an advocate in heaven who is Jesus Christ the righteous, who lived perfectly in your place, and he is the judge, but yet he stepped into the punishment as the judge so you wouldn't have to be judged. And so as the accuser comes before God and says, look at this filthy sinner, Jesus says, yes, and I paid for all of his sins. And he is righteous in me. My righteousness covers him as a gift, and my death on the cross was for his sins. And Satan has no ground for accusations. But friends, Satan would want you to not believe that good news. He wants you to live in guilt. He wants you to live in excessive sorrow. He wants you to live in hopelessness. He wants you to not have spiritual victory in your life. He wants you to imagine that you're so bad that God could never receive you and forgive you. Well, that's exactly the opposite. God will receive anyone and everyone who will but turn from their sins, confess their sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so part of satanic warfare is for you to believe that God is against you, that God hates you, that you're not forgiven, that you're not in his good graces, and that you're not in Christ. And if you are, you need to stand up against the devil with truth. You need to say out loud, perhaps, Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? You need to say out loud, perhaps, sometimes, 1 John 1.9, if I confess my sin and confess it, God is faithful and God is just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I just confess, therefore, Satan, I am cleansed of this unrighteousness. I will walk in that cleansing. Friends, that is grabbing hold of the promises of God and living in them by faith. And Satan hates that, which is why I'm smiling. Let's do it. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great German reformer, uh, would hear the devil condemning him, he would be accusing him in his mind of certain sins. You know what Luther would do to fight back? He would say something like this, Satan, you forgot this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin, and they're all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. I love that. Oh, you want to accuse me? Here's some more ammunition. And then you drop the gospel bomb on him. And what can he do? Friends, if you exercise faith in the truth of the gospel, Satan can't touch you. Now, what I'm not talking about is using grace as an excuse to hold on to sin and cuddle it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you are repentant, you resist the devil and temptation, and you are, as Hebrews 12 said, trying to get rid of that sin that so easily entangles you or clings to you. If that's you and you are living a non-habitually sinful life, friends, you can claim the gospel all day and every day, and you must you must. We are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is saying here, like, look, we understand how Satan operates, and we need to fight against him. Does Satan know our thoughts? Does Satan know our thoughts? It's a good question. 
The answer is no, because he's not God. Only God is omniscience, omniscient, okay? Science, knowing, omni, all. Only God knows everything. John Frame said it like this. God not only knows all the information of all the books in my library, but he knows it from the perspective of a fly on the wall. (laughs) That's crazy, but that's God. God knows all things. You know what Satan knows? He knows a lot. Do you know why? Because he pre-exists human beings and he's been studying us since the fall. And so my guess is he's seen your type a thousand times. He's like, I've seen you before. I've ruined many like you. You're nothing to me. And he knows just how to tempt you. And so do you, do you know how when you know someone very well, like your spouse or your kids, there's a situation and you look at them and you're like, I know what they're thinking. And you shake your head and you're like, it's not going to go well. <laughs> right? Do you don't think Satan's better at that? If we, with limited time with an individual, Satan's had millennia of time to study us, you don't think he can look at you in a certain situation and predict with great accuracy what's about to happen? Oh, he can. Therefore, we must be watchful and sober-minded because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And he is no or rather, you are no match for him, but he is no match for God. It's a lie to believe that Satan is equal in power to God, and there's this eternal struggle between good and bad. No, God is the creator and sustainer of Satan and demons, meaning if God snapped the finger like Thanos, Satan and demons would just disappear. They'd turn into ash and float into the atmosphere because they are dependent on him for his, their very existence. In him, we live and move and have our being. Without God, there is no life, there is no movement, and there is no being, even of Satan and demons. They are 100% dependent on God as you and I are. And as I said, God has given them a certain amount of freedom to, in some way that's way higher than we can understand, accomplish his purposes. So, does Satan know our thoughts? No, he does not. He can't read your thoughts, but he can read your social media posts. And you know what? If I went on your social media posts and read back for like a year or two, I'd know you, right? If it's that easy for a human being, how easy is it for Satan? Who invisibly can just stand there and follow you around all day and you don't even know he's there. So friends, how do we live in light of that truth? Friends, we need to live in God's presence, know the truth of the word, ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and when temptation comes your way, you call upon God for help. Again and again and again. Now, here's the next question, and we're we're almost done. How does Satan know how to strategically tempt us? We touched on this again, but here's a text in Ephesians 6. Not an unfamiliar text. This is maybe the New Testament primo uh, spiritual warfare text. Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, Ephesus was a very spiritually dark place. Do you remember that? Uh, when, when the Christians came to faith, they burned their magic books and their demonic books and, and had a great bonfire, and, and it added up to the millions in today's money. There was all kinds of demonic worship through false pagan and and Greco-Roman gods. Ephesus was loaded with demonic warfare, and they were very uh, aware of spiritual presence. And so Paul, wrapping up the letter to the Ephesians, says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 10 is is huge application, friend. How do I be strong against Satan and demons? You be strong in God's strength and in the strength of his might. You can't do this by yourself. You have no power against the force this wicked, this cunning, and this deceptive. And then we put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Now, interestingly, you know what that word schemes is? In, in Greek, it's methodia. What does that word sound like? Methodia. Methods. Methods. And the word means scheming, craftiness, or methods. Okay? We put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the methods or the schemes, the plans, the wicked strategic moves of temptation that Satan has against us. Now, if you know anything about the armor of God, you need to know this. The armor of God is at its height, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our salvation, the helmet of salvation. Jesus is our righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is the belt of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the essence of the gospel, which is the uh, the, the shoes that we wear. Jesus is who we have faith in, like the shield. And Jesus is the Word of God. Okay, Jesus is the armor of God. And so it's not like we put on this abstract armor and then go battle with Satan. We're in Christ, and therefore we can fight Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That word wrestle there literally is hand-to-hand combat. It's body-to-body, meaning Satan and demons are very close, like in your bedroom close, like in your car while you're driving close. That's the image here. It says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. The wrestling is shoulder-to-shoulder. You're hugging the person around their body That's the image used for satanic warfare. We should take heed to that. It's not an abstract idea. It's a real wrestle. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Some translations say heavenly realms. And I like realms better because heavenly places, my son the other day, he was thinking very deeply. And he said, Dad, remember, he's like just turned five. Dad, is heaven beyond the outer limits of space? And I'm like, watching Star Trek, bro? Like, what's going on? (laughs) And I said, maybe. It's a good theologian answer. Maybe. Some think that. And then I, I went, you know, Marvel multiverse on him. Some think that it's another dimension that is very close to us. And if we had access to this dimension, we could see it and experience it all the time. But to us, that dimension is closed, but not to them. And I think that's more accurate. The heavenly realms is the spiritual environment that coincides with our physical reality, but often it's so invisible to us, we don't even think about it. Yet you felt it, haven't you? Have you felt it? I've felt it. And you can tell it's, it is a terrible, dark, ugly, foul, depressing, wet blanket in the rain, nasty feeling. And so, friends, how do we fight? We fight in Christ. Therefore, if you're not in Jesus, you are super vulnerable, you don't have a chance. Right? We, we go into, you know, we're all intrigued by these stores that have little amulets and crystals and potions and, and like kettles, you know, used for mixing spells. And you see pentagrams on, on Instagram and it's super interesting. Friends, all that is often smokescreen. The real power lies in you exercising faith in the promises of God and believing them and living them out, walking them out. And that seems so normal. It's like, hey, I want to be able to say some kind of spell and watch demons poof into smoke. That's what I want. That's not Christianity, okay? It's not Christianity. Now, uh, Isaiah 14, 12 gives us some insight. And this is it, guys. I know I said that a minute ago. I'm sorry. This is it. Pre-fall, what is Satan's context and will? Okay, pre-fall, meaning what about Satan before he fell? Okay, and this is, we'll close with this, okay? In Isaiah, uh, there is a declaration by Isaiah against the king of Babylon, and scholars are divided on whether or not this is high spiritual imagery for the king of Babylon, or if this is actually talking about Satan himself 
living through the king of Babylon. Okay? And, and often you do have rulers ruling by demonic powers. And you see this in Daniel. You have the, uh, Michael, the archangel, having to come and free the messenger angel who is going to answer Daniel's prayer. But it says, the prince of Persia, a demon, was having captive this messenger angel for like a, a, a month. And Michael, the chief angel, had to come and do some kind of battle with the prince of Persia to release this angel, and then he comes and gives Daniel the message. And we're like, that's bizarre. Well, that's in Daniel. Read it. It just gives us a, a little glimpse into what's going on. Some demon had charge over Persia in some sense, and Daniel is praying, and God sends a messenger angel to, to give him a message in response to his prayer, and there's spiritual warfare going on. All right. So... Isaiah, again, speaking to the king of Babylon, says this, How have you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? Here's an here's a excerpt from a good commentary. Fallen from heaven. A Canaanite myth that speaks of one of the lesser gods attempting to sit on Baal's throne may be the background for this stanza. Morning star, the Hebrew is translated Lucifer in the Latin Vulgate. Okay, now Lucifer is, is familiar to you all, okay? This Hebrew word for morning star is the translation into the Latin Vulgate, into Latin, Lucifer which is carried over into many English translations. But Jesus is the true morning star. And you can read this in Revelation 22:16, Numbers 24:17, and 2 Peter 1:19. And so where does Lucifer come from? It comes from right there, O day star. Translated from Hebrew into Latin. Now, here's one more, okay? This is this is Similar, almost a parallel text here. I know that's big and that scares some of you. Give me five seconds, okay? Ezekiel was pronouncing a lament on the king of Tyre, okay? A wicked king. And it says, the word of the Lord came to me. It's Ezekiel, son of man. Raise a lament over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now listen to this language, okay? I do think it's a pronouncement to the king but listen to the spiritual overtones, not undertones, overtones by which Satan is spoken of. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now again, this is a declaration against the king of Tyre, yet guardian cherub on the mountain of God, perfect when you were created until there was unrighteousness found in you. To me, that speaks of Satan, okay? And scholars would disagree with me here, but the idea here is Satan pre-fall was beautiful 
and gorgeous, and it got to his head. His wisdom and his beauty made him prideful, and so he sinned, okay? Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned, and it was pride. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And so what I think this seems to be saying here is, pride was Satan's sin that cast him down from God's presence as a guardian cherub. And as Augustine says, pride is the mother of all other sins because it births every other sin. You remember what Lewis said about pride. It, It is, in comparison, all other sins are mere flea bites. And so, what do we do in light of all these things? Friends, we need to be sober-minded, watchful. We need to be in Christ. We need to be living in the truth and not in lies. We need to be repenting often and asking for help, confessing our sins to one another. Friends, if there is an outstanding sin between you and God or you and someone else, it is so dangerous for you not to deal with that. And I know what that means, because for some of you, there's a lot of sin you need to deal with. And friends, if you refuse to deal with the sin, you are opening yourself up to Satan. You really are. And so sin is his realm, and if you are living in it, you are living in his realm. It is so dangerous. So when we repent from sin and we turn and ask God for forgiveness, he really forgives us, and we are transferred from darkness to light. John says it like this, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Remember what the devil means. Engagement in slander, slanderous, false statements, damaging a person's reputation. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, notice the practice, practice of sinning. It doesn't mean if you sin, it means if you continue to practice it, okay? Some of you practice piano, and by years you've gotten very good. That's the idea. You continue to practice the sin. No, that's not good. Now listen to this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John is just being kind to us and very blunt, okay? It's good for you to read the Bible, and it's good for you to hear declarations like this, okay? Because if you're not living righteously, and none of us are righteous, okay? I don't want to make it like there are some of us who are righteous and some of us who are unrighteous. No, the idea is we are practicing repentance, meaning turning from sin, confessing sin, seeking to live a godly life, and yes, you will fall. But there is a difference between sinning and then getting back up, confessing, to repent again, and I don't care. I don't care. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and whoever makes a practice of it, John says, is of the devil. And so, friends, you need to realize this. The reason the Son of God appeared, Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that good news? He has bound up Satan and demons, the strong man, and now by this good news that we preach and live in, we are robbing Satan and his kingdom. We can resist the devil and he will flee. All right. This is a very, to some of you, thick book. I highly recommend it. It is very balanced and non-sensational, okay? It's called Spiritual Warfare in the Storyline of Scripture. The tagline is, a biblical, theological, and practical approach. 
I wish I could say this is on the, books, the book table. It's not, but you will be helped if you pick this up. If this is interesting to you and you want to go biblically deep, get this book. Again, Spiritual Warfare in the Storyline of Scripture, a Biblical, Theological, and Practical Approach. Okay? Get this. You will be helped. And what we're going to do right now is spiritual warfare. How? We're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us by eating and drinking the symbol of his body and blood, which destroys the work of the devil. And we're going to sing a good gospel song in the devil's face. Now, we don't do that in pride because remember, pride is a sin that will bring us down. We do it in Christ and we celebrate. And so, Make no mistake about it, when we take communion and we sing as one church, as God's people, declaring that we are free from Satan and demons and free from his kingdom, friends, that is warfare. And so let us do it together, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes for us. And may God help us to walk in the light as he is in the light.